Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1207. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 14. This is being recorded on October 8th of the year 2021. Before getting into the meat of the program, uh, as always, three links. One of those links, uh, these are at the top of each program description and at the top of each Food for Thought post. Uh, one link will enable you to subscribe to the comments that are made mostly by our brilliant contributing editor, Terra Fractal, and sometimes by other intelligent listeners as well. The other, another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts of For the Record. If podcasts are the best way for you to consume For the Record, sister station WFMU is podcasting For the Record, and you can subscribe to those podcasts from sister station WFMU. And last but most assuredly not least, all of my now 42-plus years of work on the air, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files, are available on a 32-gigabyte flash drive. That flash drive will be updated uh, to roughly the end of October of this year, probably through about, for the record, 1210. And it is available. Uh, at, at, uh, you can click on a link at the top of each Food for Thought post and at the top of each For the Record program description, and that will take you to the link where you can obtain the flash drive that is put together by Sister Station KFJC-FM, and it will be updated uh, roughly at the end of October, or uh, before the end of October, roughly around for the record program 1210, so it will be current. Now, uh, we are going to return to the subject of the narco-fascism of Kuomintang, of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. This really is a larger undertaking because we are looking at uh, what is really the history of modern China at one level and also the history of uh, our dealings in Asia, that is to say, America's dealings in Asia, particularly during the Cold War. In this program, and perhaps in our next as well, we will uh, dolly out and take a look at uh, what was going on in Asia uh, in the late 40s and early 1950s in particular, as regards the Korean War and some of the maneuvering around that. Because indeed, uh, looking at American Cold War policy in China is to look at a larger picture of America's dealings with uh, Korea and with Japan and with uh, what was French Indochina, it became Vietnam. And as we will see, the groundwork was laid uh, before the end of World War II for much of America's uh, 
undertakings in Asia during the Cold War, and Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, and beyond that, that powerful milieu known as the China Lobby, which we will begin exploring. Well, we actually began it last week. We will explore that at greater length in this program as well, are in turn inextricably linked with America's Asian policy during the Cold War and now during the new Cold War as well. We are going to be once again, drawing on a very important book. Uh, it is called The Sung Dynasty, S-O-O-N-G. It is authored by Sperling Seagrave, uh, published in hardcover by Harper and Rowe. There's also a softcover edition and an Amazon Kindle edition as well. I thought the book was out of print. Some people have told me they have been able to find it. Uh, if so, great. I've been linking to some of the used book services in uh, the written descriptions for the program. Uh, whether you can get it new or whether you get it used, please do get this book because it is very important. It is an excellent book. And once again, I get no money from this. Uh, also, do be aware that Sperling Seagrave, the author of this book, and also Peggy Seagrave, who uh, was a tremendous help in uh, writing this, uh, were basically the targets of an assassination squad that was put uh, together in Taiwan in 1985 to come kill them for having written this book. They were tipped off by a high-ranking CIA official, and they decamped to a sailboat and lived uh, on that sailboat and traveled around the world. Eventually, they settled in southern France, and Sterling Seagrave was the uh, target of an assassination attempt. He believes it was because of Gold Warriors, another book we will be using uh, on this program that we have used in the past. Uh, whatever the case may be as to why Sterling was, uh, again, he, he narrowly escaped an assassination attempt and was badly injured in that. This was on Christmas Day of 2011. Uh, Sterling Seagrave paid a very dear price for having written this book. So did his wife, Peggy. And uh, I think the least I can do and the least we can do uh, is to read the book and to pass along the information that they got. Uh, it it <laughs> is uh, galling to me to see our, our propagandized media talking about Taiwan and uh, describing it as a vibrant democracy, unquote. Well, that quote, vibrant democracy, unquote, back in 1985, put together a team to murder Sterling Seagrave for having written this book. Uh, how vibrantly democratic can you get, eh? In any event, it is a very important book. Now, the Sung Dynasty, the title of the book, refers to the remarkable family uh, of Charlie Sung. He was a Chinese who was educated at... Uh, Southern missionary schools, and then became very wealthy selling Bibles in China. He had a number of children. He had a daughter, 
Ailing Sung, who married H. H. Kung, one of the top uh, financial officials of the Kuomintang. She was a Lucretia Borgia type, a very, very powerful, very intelligent, very Machiavellian, and utterly deadly with a capital U and a capital D. She was reported to have uh, run assassination teams in China. She arranged for her youngest sister, Mei Ling Sung, to marry Chiang Kai-shek, and she became Madame Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, T.V. Sung was the oldest brother, uh, son of Charlie Sung, and he became, uh, at one point, the richest man in the world. He served various roles with the Kuomintang. He was finance minister, he was premier, he was foreign minister, and he was a major power broker in corporate America, and also a crooked as a three-dollar bill. He was deeply involved in the Kuomintang slash Green Gang narcotics traffic, as we have seen, was heavily involved in uh, various financial scams, losing China, and also uh, greatly enriched himself by pirating a tremendous amount of the Lend-Lease material that was financed by the American taxpayer to aid Chiang Kai-shek during World War II. Uh, T.V. Sung pocketed a lot of that, so did many of Chiang's generals, all of whom were uh, key green gang operatives in addition to being military officers, and much of that was bartered to the Japanese as well, which for someone that grew up watching things like Victory at Sea on television as a kid. Uh, that is just mind-boggling. Uh, P.V. Sung's younger brother, P.L. Sung, became a key uh, consultant to the Treasury Department. He also was deeply involved in the shenanigans vis-a-vis uh, lease At one point, he was involved with the Chinese end of Lend-Lease. Then he moved to North America and was involved with uh, governing the American end of Lend-Lease to China. And again, a lot of that wound up in the coffers of the Sung clan and the Kung clan, where they did, of course, by marriage. Uh, H. H. Kung, A. Ling Kung's children grew up with the children of Big Ear Two, a.k.a. Chu Yuasheng, the boss of the Green Gang, and someone who uh, held the rank of Major General in the Kuomintang Army. He was the real uh, power behind the throne. He was the most powerful man in Chiang Kai-shek's China, and at one point he showed Chiang Kai-shek who was really boss by kidnapping uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek when Chiang ran afoul of him. Chiang generally <clears throat> did not do that. Now, the China lobby was basically uh, the creature of the Sung clan, although it also was a powerful web of corporate dealings, uh, politicians in the U.S. aligned with uh, nationalist China, very powerful media figures, chief among them, but by no means only, Henry Luce, the son of missionaries in China, who was the head of Time Incorporated. He was a major figure in the uh, China lobby. There were other journalists as well. Uh, Louis Kung, the son of H.H. H. Kung and Ailing Kung, a, a, a name, uh, Ailing Sung, 
became uh, a powerful oil man, and he set up oil companies in the U.S., which in turn were used to benefit uh, key political and media figures who basically uh, had uh, oil drilling rights uh, secured for them by Louis Kung. He also, Louis Kung, that is, also was heavily networked with Richard Nixon and helped to uh, elect Richard Nixon to the U.S. Senate in 1950. Turning now to the Sung Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave, uh, a couple of key excerpts here to indicate who the, the, the dominant element was in the China lobby. The China lobby belonged to the Sung clan and the nationalist Chinese government. And still later, despite the ebb and flow of their personal relationship with the Chang regime, the Kungs and Sungs remained the primary pipeline connecting American special interests with Taiwan. A. Ling and H. H. Kung, T. V. Sung, and Mei Ling Sung Shang devoted considerable energies to the lobby and sometimes gathered for strategy sessions at the Kung Estate in Riverdale. That is a very tony suburb of New York City. Now, after uh, the corruption and uh, just complete ineptitude in terms of uh, fighting the, the Japanese, he basically did not fight the Japanese past a point. He collaborated with them, and that was a major factor in driving the Chinese people into the arms of Mao Zedong, the fact that the U.S. Uh, was complicit in uh, having Japanese troops, scores of thousands of them, as we looked at in our last broadcast, uh, work with Chiang's armies fighting against the Chinese communists, only uh, accelerated and accentuated that process. The Truman administration turned against Chiang Kai-shek, and Chiang's regime and the powerful corporate, political, and media and national security interests in this country, chiefly, again, the Sung and Kung families, uh, then were the linchpin of what has become known as the China lobby. Once again, reading from the Sung dynasty. The American press at the end of the 1940s was just getting accustomed to the sound of a new editorial policy. Quote, tell Chang he is finished and that the U.S. is finished with him, unquote, when the Chang government poured millions of dollars into a counteroffensive. Zealous Americans who joined the pro-Taiwan crusade became the fundraisers, the organizers, the telephoners, the legmen, the gophers, the publicists, the congressmen, the tycoons, the hosts and hostesses of the shadowy society that was called the China Lobby, unquote. Its management, its direction, and its primary finances were not American. The China lobby belonged to the Sung clan and the nationalist Chinese government. The people involved thought they were working for the greater glory of God or for, quote, the survival of the democratic system, unquote. They were really working for a Chinese public relations campaign. Everybody in the 1950s heard the term China lobby, but nobody knew exactly what it encompassed and who was involved. Quote, if it had been run by Moscow rather than Taipei, unquote, said the French diplomat, everyone involved 
could have been hung for treason, unquote. Marcus Childs wrote, No one who knows anything about the way things work here doubts that the powerful China lobby has brought extraordinary influence to bear on Congress and the executive branch. It would be hard to find any parallel in diplomatic history for the agents and diplomatic representatives of a foreign power exerting such pressures. Nationalist China has used the techniques of direct intervention on a scale rarely if ever seen, unquote. Part of this campaign was to pour gasoline on the McCarthy witch hunts. And parenthetically, I would note that uh, Donald Trump's political mentor and for many years his attorney was Roy Cohn, the top uh, legal running dog of Joe McCarthy's witch hunts. Continuing now with the Song dynasty. Chang's government used existing American corporations headed by men who shared its viewpoint. It hired advertising agencies. It created dummy corporations as blinds for propaganda. It set up a propaganda ministry of its own in the United States. It cultivated influential, sympathetic Americans who set up bipartisan, quote, non-profit, unquote, committees that served as pressure groups. Few activities were directed personally by the Songs. That was no longer necessary. The Chinese technocrats who guided daily operations were a new generation of Song protégés slickly groomed on Song techniques. The New York public relations firm Allied Syndicates Incorporated counted among its major clients the Bank of China with H.H. Kung as director. Another public relations firm, Hamilton Wright, worked for six years as a registered agent for Nationalist China, writing and distributing stories, news articles, photographs, and movies to create a favorable image of Chiang Kai-shek and his regime. One clause of the right organization's contract with the Nationalist government guaranteed that, quote, in 75% of the releases, Neither the editor of the newspaper nor the newspaper reader, and this following is in quotes, has any knowledge where the material originated. And this, again, that is one clause of the right organization's contract with the nationalist government, and it guarantees that, quote, in 75% of the releases, neither the editor of the newspaper nor the newspaper reader, and the following is in all caps, has any knowledge where the material originated, unquote. The Herald Tribune service, for one, owned by Henry Luce's Republican friend Jock Whitney, fed this spurious material to unsuspecting American newspapers for years without ever identifying the source. T.V. Sung's wartime Universal Trading Corporation was listed in 1949 as a foreign agent working for the Chinese government with assets of nearly $22 million. The Chinese News Service, based in Taiwan, established branches in New York, in Washington, New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, and distributed millions of copies of a journal called This Week in Free China. It also circulated news stories and feature articles, thinly disguised propaganda to fill the columns of American papers. Taiwan's 
Central News Agency, which went to great lengths to emulate the Associated Press, spent 654 million U.S. dollars in only three years, 1946 to 1949, producing articles on Chang's anti-communist struggle and on lavishly entertaining American editors and correspondents in the U.S. and the Far East, more than $200 million each year. One more time. Taiwan's Central News Agency, which went to great lengths to emulate the Associated Press, spent $654 million U.S. in only three years, 1946 to 1949. That was a lot of money back in the late 40s, producing articles on Chang's anti-communist struggle and on lavishly entertaining American editors and correspondents in the U.S. and the Far East, more than $200 million each year. Small wonder that a large segment of the American public believed that Chang was the essence of virtue and his cause was a just one. Similar amounts were spent during the Korean War and the periodic crises over the defense of the Formosa Strait. Guesses at the grand total spent by Taiwan to stupefy Americans ran as high as $1 billion each year. Taiwan exercised a particularly strong influence on American newspapers of the far right, notably the influential Oakland Tribune, owned by Senator William F. Noland, that's K-N-O-W-L-A-N-D, a dominant figure in West Coast politics and one of the most powerful Republicans in Washington. His Capitol Hill colleague called him, quote, the senator from Formosa, unquote. Another unabashed Chang supporter was New Hampshire's William Loeb, far-right publisher of the Manchester Union Leader, who backed Senator Bridges in the China lobby. Others were Roy Howard of the Scripps Howard Newspapers, John Bailey of ABC News. We'll hear more about him later. Remember John Bailey of ABC News. And, of course, Henry Luce. Luce biographer Swanberg gives an assessment, quote, Henry Luce now saw the most grandiose project of his lifetime in danger of ruin. Wrapped up in the ruin was not only the fate of China and of Christianity and the Asian hegemony of the United States, but also his own peace of mind and reputation. Chang in China was to have been the crowning of a decade and a half of planning in the Chrysler Building and Rockefeller Center and of countless thousands of words of loose press propaganda. The nightmare rise of Mao in China brought a powerful loose cover strategy. For one thing, his China Institute of America, founded as a haven for Chinese students, now was registered with loose as trustee as a foreign agent working for the nationalists. Newscaster Robert S. Allen reported, quote, one of the most remarkable aspects of this remarkable foreign raid is the fact that it's being masterminded by certain well-known Americans. Henry Luce has been propagandizing and agitating for another $2 billion U.S. handout for Chang for a long time. Again, that was an immense amount of money back in the late 40s and early 50s. Continuing, and this is from newscaster Robert Allen. And in Washington, practically the whole loose bureau has been working full blast as part of the Chang lobby. 
Many of the activists in the lobby were people whose families had worked in China as missionaries and now thought their heritage was being thrown away. Among them were the directors of the American China Policy Association and the Committee to Defend America by Aiding Anti-Communist China, which issued blizzards of paper urging the U.S. government to provide more aid to China. There were powerful people on the committee's board of directors, David Dubinsky of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union and second vice president of the American Federation of Labor, James Farley, chairman of the board of Coca-Cola Export Corporation and former postmaster general. The American China Policy Association was headed by Alfred Kohlberg, K-O-H-L-B-E-R-G, that wealthy importer of nationalist textiles and friend of Claire Booth Luce, Henry Luce's powerful wife. Last but far from least was the Committee of One Million, which included Henry Luce in its membership. It was created in 1953 to keep communist China out of the United Nations. Later, it was reborn as the Committee for Free China. It was still lobbying for grassroots support for Taiwan, even after U.S. relations with Peking were normalized in 1979. Among its members were 23 senators, including Noland, Mike Mansfield, Everett Berkson of Illinois, and Jacob Javits of New York, plus 83 congressmen, a number of generals and admirals, and a plethora of tycoons. These groups were periodically supported by campaigns waged in Chang's behalf by the Executive Council of the AFL-CIO, the American Legion, the American Security Council, parenthetically founded by uh, Charles Willoughby, uh, General Charles Willoughby, they call Adolf von Scheppel and Wiedenbach, the German-born fascist who was General MacArthur's top intelligence officer during World War II. Beginning again. These groups were periodically supported by campaigns waged on Chang's behalf by the Executive Council of the CIO, AFL-CIO, the American Legion, the American Security Council, the American Conservative Union, and Young Americans for Freedom. To many conservative organizations, Taiwan became synonymous with anti-communism. In the atmosphere of the 1950s, the fear of Red China kept normally sensible people from wondering where all the money was coming from. Despite the ebb and flow of their personal relationship with the Chang regime, the Kungs and Sungs remained the primary pipeline connecting American special interests with Taiwan. A. Ling and H. H. Kung T.V. Sung and Mei-Ling Sung Chang delivered considerable energies to the lobby and sometimes gathered for strategy sessions at the Kung Estate in Riverdale. A-Ling and H.H. H. Kung stayed in Riverdale in exile from 1948 on. As principal director of the Bank of China's New York City branch, H.H. H. was driven into Wall Street two or three days a week. He spent the rest of his time working at home. Columnist Drew Pearson, one of the few journalists who maintained an interest in the songs after they went into exile, called the Bank of China the, quote, nerve center of the China lobby, unquote. Through its offices, Pearson reminded his readers many millions of dollars were transferred from the nationalist government to underwrite 
the propaganda blitz by the China lobby. And then quoting from a Drew Pearson column, Dr. Kung's knowledge of American politics is almost as astute as his knowledge of Chinese finance, and well before he entered the Truman cabinet, Kung picked Lewis Johnson as his personal attorney. It may or may not be significant that later, when Johnson became Secretary of Defense, he was one of the staunchest advocates of American support for Formosa. Dr. Kung has been a caller upon popular Senator Stiles' Bridges of New Hampshire, and the Senator likewise has been active in urging aid to Formosa and the Chiang Kai-shek exiles. When Bridges ran for re-election in 1948, again still quoting uh, the from a uh, Pearson column, when Bridges ran for re-election in 1948, he listed a $2,000 campaign contribution from Alfred Kohlberg of New York, the frontman for the China lobby, and a friend of Dr. Kung. Uh, again, $2,000 doesn't sound like much. In 1948, that was a lot of money. It is significant that Senator Bridges not only has voted and made speeches in favor of China lobby policies, but extended one of the greatest possible favors to the Kung Sung dynasty. In 1948, the same year that Bridges received his contributions from Kohlberg of the China lobby, Bridges appointed ex-Senator Worth Clark of Idaho as an impartial representative of the Senate Appropriations Committee to go to China and make an, quote, impartial, unquote, report on the nationalist government. Bridges at that time occupied the potent post of chairman of the Appropriations Committee. The purpose of the survey was to recommend whether more U.S. aid to Chang was justified. What most people did not realize about the supposedly impartial survey, however, was that Clark was not exactly in the position to be impartial. For the ex-senator from Idaho had long been a member of the law firm which represented T.V. Sung, the other brother-in-law of Chiang Kai-shek. In brief, Clark was a paid lobbyist for the China lobby. Furthermore, part of Clark's expenses were paid by the Chinese nationalists, despite the fact that he was supposed to be working for the U.S. Senate and the American taxpayers. Clark came back with a vigorous recommendation that more aid be sent to Chiang Kai-shek. A few weeks later, Pearson declared that these policies were still being practiced to the great benefit of the Sung family fortune. Uh, note the following. We're going to uh, come back to this uh, later on as we talk about some of the maneuvering around the beginning of the Korean War. Again, uh, quoting from a Drew Pearson column, a move by a Chang brother-in-law with other wealthy Chinese to corner the soybean market at the expense of the American public. The brother-in-law is P. L. Sung, brother of Foreign Minister T. V. Sung, who formerly handled much of the three and a half billion dollars worth of supplies which the U.S. sent to China during World War II. The soybean pool netted the profit of thirty million dollars and shot up the cost to the American consumer at $1 a bushel. Again, that was a lot in 1950. Continuing. Note the following. 
One of the strange things about the soybean manipulation was that its operators knew exactly the right time to buy up the world's soybean supply a few weeks before the communists invaded Korea. Recently, this column told how Eugene Sung, son of T.L. Sung, together with L.K. Lewis Kung, son of Dr. H.H. Kung, another brother-in-law, sold a huge quantity of precious tin to the Chinese communists. Operations like this may be one reason why the disillusioned Chinese people throughout the Sung Kung dynasty and accepted communism as a lesser evil. And note uh, the following. Uh, John Bailey of ABC News was one of the media figures of all the people like Henry Luce and his camp who were heavily involved with the China lobby. Uh, Lewis Kung was son of H.H. Kung and Ailing Kung, nay Ailing Sung. Uh, became an oil man, heavily involved not only with uh, greasing the palms, so to speak, or oiling the palms might be a better way of putting it, of key media figures. He also was heavily involved with Richard Nixon as well. Returning now to the Sung Dynasty, Louis Kung had become one of the busiest members of the Klan. During Richard Nixon's 1950 senatorial campaign, Betty Kung dispatched younger son to Los Angeles to give the senator donations and encouragement. He also persuaded California's large Chinese constituency to help elect Nixon to help elect one more time. He also persuaded California's large Chinese constituency to help elect Nixon. Lewis's helping hand forged a bond between the Kungs and the Nixons who visited the Riverdale mansion from time to time over the years. Lewis took an active role in the Sung Kung Petroleum Holdings with oil properties across Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. At the Nationalist Chinese Embassy in Washington in 1956, Lewis, son of H.H. H. Kung and A. Ling Sung, uh, Kung, nay A. Ling Sung, organized the Cheyenne Oil Company, which in turn controlled Magnetrust Company, Westland Oil Development Corporation, and the Atoka Drilling Company, that's A-T-O-K-A. Cheyenne Oil made it a practice to solicit investments from important politicians, journalists, and movie stars. If one of Lewis's wells leased, for example, to John Bailey, then Vice President of News of the ABC Beginning again. If one of Lewis's wells leased, for example, to John Bailey, then vice president for news of the ABC network, did poorly, Lewis guaranteed that Bailey would have his investment back. If the well turned out to be a success, then the profits were divided with Bailey. Some of the investors who were offered this type of deal did not know that Chinese money controlled Cheyenne oil. In this fashion, Powerful men could invest without appreciable risk and make handsome profits. Uh, and again, the 
intersection of Chang's regime, which, as we've seen, was not only a doctrinaire fascist regime, uh, it was complicit in many ways with the invading Japanese. One of the things that ultimately uh, helped to drive the Chinese people into the arms of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, it also was basically a front for the Green Gang. It was a criminal organization. It was dependent on the narcotics trade and was involved in just about any and every other form of corruption, including pocketing vast amounts of, uh, of U.S. lend-lease supplies for themselves and, in turn, rolling a lot of that over directly to the Japanese, who were supposed to be uh, fought with those weapons. Uh, we'll come back to the very curious timing where T.L. Sung, the younger brother of T.V. Sung, uh, a fellow in charge of the uh, Lend-Lease in World War II, first with the Chinese end, then with the American end, and a consultant to the Treasury Department after the war, this at a time when the Treasury Department, along with the CIA and elements of Chang's government, were helping to spirit much of the gold out of China ahead of the advance of the Communist Chinese. What we're going to look at next is P.B. Sung's post-World War II role, and he was one of the most powerful people uh, in the Asian American community and tremendously powerful in an overall sense. Part of this was his wealth, his tremendous political connections, and also uh, bear in mind that P.B. Sung was deeply involved with, among other things, the narcotics traffic of the Kuomintang and uh, the financial looting of the Chinese people, uh, as well as pocketing a lot of the American land lease appropriations for himself. In one of our earlier programs, we took a look at how 60 American battle tanks were supposed to have been shipped to China. The cover story was that the ship on which they were uh, being conveyed was torpedoed. In fact, those tanks were never built. The ship never sailed. It went right into the coffers of T.V. Sung, whose brother T.L. Sung eventually became the American side of the Lend-Lease management. He was previously in charge of the Chinese side as well. And in addition to his political clout, in addition to his corporate maneuverings, at one point, again, T.B. Sung was the wealthiest man in the world, heavily involved in, heavily invested, I should say, with uh, General Motors and or DuPont. He also was heavily involved with the Chinese, uh, with the Chinese criminal milieu on both sides of the Pacific Ocean. That was part of his gravitas. In the Sung Dynasty, uh, in a chapter called The Sung Legacy, uh, Sterling Seagrave writes about T.V. Sung and his post-war world. Although T.V. avoided Taiwan and devoted most of his attention to his expanding financial empire, he did back the China lobby financially because it was in his interest to do so. The levers of the China lobby could be worked in many directions. Moving out of Manhattan, he purchased a palatial home on Long Island, which he had decorated with paintings selected by people who admitted, who he admitted knew more about art than he did. He didn't know art, but he knew what he liked, and that was money and power. Beginning again. Moving out of Manhattan, he purchased a palatial home on Long Island, which he had decorated with paintings selected by people who he admitted knew more about art than he did. 
He had a rich collection of Chinese bronzes as well, although he acknowledged that they too were chosen for him. His mansion was heavily guarded and had an elaborate alarm system. It was ordinary street law in the Chinese-American communities of the United States that T.V. Sung's Long Island home contained the, quote, unbelievable, unquote, fortune, and the T.V. was an, quote, extremely dangerous, unquote, man, because he was the most powerful Chinese tycoon in, in America, and a lot of, quote, bad people, unquote, were dependent on him. A variation of this was repeated to me by a Chinese scholar employed as an analyst by the CIA. It was not so much implied that T.V. himself was dangerous, but that the slightest word from T.V. Song could bring about terrible consequences from the Chinese tongs or syndicates, the Chinese banks, and nameless other objects of fear. This last few sentences again. It was ordinary street lore in the Chinese-American communities of the United States that T.V. Sung's Long Island home contained an unbelievable fortune and that T.V. was, quote, an extremely dangerous, unquote, man because he was the most powerful Chinese tycoon in America and a lot of bad people, unquote, were dependent on him. A variation of this was repeated to me by a Chinese scholar employed as an analyst by the CIA. It was not so much implied that P.V. himself was dangerous, but that the slightest word from him could bring about terrible consequences from the Chinese songs or syndicates, the Chinese banks, and nameless other objects of fear. Uh, one can only wonder uh, to what extent the uh, destabilization of China and the full court press against China that I began covering in the fall of 2019, and the main element of which I believe is the COVID-19 op, and that gets every indication of being a covert operation. That virus did come from a laboratory. That laboratory was not in China. It was in the U.S., and it didn't effing, quote, leak, unquote. It is a covert operation. We're going to update that, uh, the Oswald Institute of Virology, uh, very shortly. Now, take note. Uh, one can only wonder to what extent that influence, I really should say. I should finish the thought. The money, the political connections, the media connections, how much is the old China lobby milieu uh, now uh, pulling some of these levers? Bear in mind that Roy Cohn, uh, Joe McCarthy's top running dog and one of the leaders of the who lost China charge uh, during the late 40s and 1950s, he was Donald Trump's political mentor and attorney. And Donald Trump uh, got his start in real estate and uh, gambling casinos, major vehicles for money laundering, and one can but wonder to what extent uh, the old China lobby forces are grouped behind Donald Trump. Now, returning again to an element of discussion that uh, was engaged in by uh, Sterling Seagrave, quoting from a Drew Pearson column, a move by a Chang brother-in-law with other wealthy Chinese to corner the soybean market at the expense of the American public. The brother-in-law is T.L. Sung, brother of Foreign Minister T.B. Sung, who formerly handled much of the $3.5 billion worth of supplies which the United States sent to China during the war. 
The soybean pool netted a profit of $30 million, again, a whole lot of money in 1950, and shot up the cost to the American consumer a dollar a bushel. One of the strange things about the soybean manipulation was that its operators knew exactly the right time to buy up the world's soybean supply a few weeks before the communists invaded Korea. I suspect that was not a coincidence. Uh, We're going to review a number of elements that we looked at in For the Record 1142, uh, and I will put a link to that program because the overall discussion there is very important. And uh, beyond what we're going to be able to deal with uh, due to limitations of time here, one of the things we looked at was an excerpt from uh, Colonel L. Fletcher Pratty's JFK, the CIA, Vietnam, and the Plot to Assassinate John F. Kennedy, published in hardcover by Skyhorse Publishing in 2011. Colonel Prouty was on Okinawa when the peace treaty between the U.S. and Japan was signed on September 2nd of 1945, of course, in Tokyo Bay on the decks of the USS Missouri. And Colonel Prouty relates something very interesting. And this again, uh, September 2nd, 1945, and immediately after. Quote, I was in Okinawa at that time, and doing, beginning again, I was in Okinawa, one more time, I was in Okinawa at that time, and during some business in the harbor area, I asked the harbor master if all that new military material was being returned to the United States. By the way, this I should add that, that there was a tremendous buildup of military hardware uh, in preparation for the invasion of Japan. Then, of course, when the atomic bombs were dropped, that, be, that uh, was no longer necessary. And so that is the stockpile of tremendous uh, amounts of military equipment that probably is referring to here. One more time. I was on Okinawa at that time, and doing some business in the harbor area, I asked the harbor master if all that new material was being returned to the United States. His response was direct and surprising, quote, Hell no, they ain't never going to see it again. One half of this stuff, enough to equip and supply at least 150,000 men is going to Korea, and the other half is going to Indochina, unquote. In September of 1945, none of us had any idea that the first battles of the Cold War were going to be fought by U.S. military units in those two regions beginning in 1950 and 1965. Yet that is precisely what had been planned, and it is precisely what had happened. Who made that decision back in 1943 to 1945. And again, bear in mind that the Teal Sung and other wealthy Chinese just happened to get lucky, quote-unquote, and uh, cornered the soybean market on the eve of the breakout of the Korean War, making themselves $30 million, a lot of money in 1950, and raising the cost of the American consumer a dollar a bushel. One of the things that needs to be considered uh, in connection with who helped to plan the uh, wars and uh, 
in, in both uh, Korea and ultimately, quote, French, French Indochina, which became Vietnam. Turning once again and again, we, we went into this at greater length in, for the record, 1142. There will be a link to the description and audio file for that program. Turning once again to JFK, the CIA, Vietnam, and the plot to assassinate John F. Kennedy by Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty. How many of us realize that back in November 1943, when Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt met in Cairo with Chiang Kai-shek, they were not only making plans for victory over the Axis powers in Europe, they were laying the groundwork for a follow-on period of warfare in Eastern Asia, in Indochina, 1945, Korea, 1950, following the defeat of Japan. By the way, uh, the American uh, participation in Vietnam uh, really began uh, following the negation of uh, a, an agreement reached at, uh, a, at the Geneva Peace Treaty to conduct a plebiscite to uh, see whether North and South Vietnam were to be uh, reunited. But the French-Indochina War originally, uh, one of the tenets of World War II was that the colonial properties of the warring powers were to be uh, given their independence at the end of the war. That was reneged upon. And uh, in what had been French Indochina, uh, the guerrilla forces known as the Viet Minh, which fought with the OSS, America's World War II Intelligence Service, and were aided by them, uh, were headed, of course, by Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh's declaration of independence, uh, of Vietnamese independence, quoted almost verbatim from the U.S. Declaration of Independence, but the U.S. reneged on that agreement and backed the French when they attempted to retain control of French Indochina, which was Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. There then was a guerrilla war, and uh, the French were defeated. That is the reference there. Eighty percent of the French effort in the first Indo-Chinese War, was financed by the U.S. One more time here, now returning again to this. How many of us realize that back in November of 1943, when Winston Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt met in Cairo with Chiang Kai-shek, they were not only making plans for victory over the Axis powers in Europe, they were laying the groundwork for a follow-on period of warfare in Eastern Asia in Indochina in 1945, and Korea in 1950, following the defeat of Japan. Few historians seem to recall that also in Cairo was Chiang Kai-shek's wife, Mei Ling, the American-educated sister of P.V. Sung, then the wealthiest man in the world, and she actually took part in the work of the conference along with activities of P.V. Sung's Chinese delegates, who were Chiang Kai-shek's advisors. Even more importantly, after these delegates of Chiang Kai-shek and T.V. Sung had actively participated in Cairo in the planning for the post-World War II activities in the Far East, they flew on to Tehran. The fact that immediately following the Cairo conference, the Chinese delegation was in Tehran has not been recorded in the history books of this era. And again, um, it is more than a little interesting that Chiang Kai-shek 
and Madam Chiang Kai-shek nay Mei-Ling Sung were active participants in the Cairo and Tehran conferences. Uh, as we looked at uh, a couple of programs ago, uh, the island of Formosa, which became the nation of Taiwan, that was the island to which Chiang Kai-shek had uh, flown, and basically to which he flee, he and his forces uh, fl- fled to uh, following their defeat on the mainland. Uh, that was ceded to Chiang during the Cairo conference. Uh, previously, the island of Formosa, a.k.a. Taiwan, had been a Japanese colony. Uh, Again, I suspect that uh, the fact that TV Sung, the TL Sung, rather, and other wealthy Chinese were able to corner the soybean market just coincidentally on the eve of the outbreak of the Korean War was not a coincidence. One of the things we've looked at uh, way back in the early 1990s was the breakout of the war, what was called the First Persian Gulf War. Uh, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, basically it came out that American oil companies and U.S. ambassador to Iraq, April Glaspie, encouraged him to do that. They then denied that. But uh, I suspect, although the history books have not to date anyway uh, recorded this, I suspect something similar was going on in uh, vis-a-vis Korea as well. Bear in mind again that uh, the harbor master told El Fletcher probably almost at the time that the peace treaty was being signed on the deck of the Missouri on September 2nd, 1945, that the huge amount of military material on Okinawa, half of it was going to Korea, and half of it to Indochina, and we've got uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, Mei-Ling uh, Sung, uh, a.k.a. Madam Chiang Kai-shek, participating in the Cairo and Tehran conferences. Turning to another just brilliant and important book by Sperling and Peggy Seagraves, Gold Warriors, another book, again, people should buy and read. Again, I get no money from this. A terribly important But I would say, if you haven't read Gold Warriors, you don't understand the world in which you live. Uh, Gold Warriors was published in softcover and hardcover by Verso Press, copyright 2003 and 2005. They talk about something interesting on the outbreak of the Korean War. In October of 1949, the People's Republic of China came into being. Eight months later, in June of 1950, the Korean War broke out. Just before the war began, Kadama Yoshio accompanied John Foster Bellis to negotiations in Seoul, South Korea. The Bellis party also included Kadama's protege Machii Hiyasuki, boss of the Korean Yakuza in Japan. Efforts to discover under the Freedom of Information Act what Kadama and Machi did during the trip with Douglas have run into a stone wall. In the Douglas MacArthur Memorial Archive, we discovered a personal letter from Kadama to General MacArthur offering to provide thousands of Yakuza and former Japanese Army soldiers to fight alongside American soldiers in Korea. According to sources in Korea, and Japan, the offer was accepted, and these men joined the Allied force on the peninsula, posing as Korean soldiers. 
Very, very interesting indeed. Uh, something else turning once again to uh, JFK, the CIA of Vietnam and the plot to assassinate John F. Kennedy, the Colonel L. Fitzgerald. Once again, talking about John Foster Dulles, who negotiated the very funny peace treaty with Japan that uh, basically absolved Japan of any financial obligations in terms of uh, compensating its victims. It was the same John Foster Dulles in Korea, serving as no more than a, quote, bipartisan consultant, unquote, to the Department of State in June of 1950, who had said, quote, no matter what you say about the president of Korea, Sing Man Rhee, and the president of nationalist China, Chiang Kai-shek, these two gentlemen are the equivalent of the founder of the church, i.e., you know, Jesus or St. Peter. They are Christian gentlemen, unquote. Then, while still in Korea on June 19, 1950, John Foster Bellis made a most unusual speech before the Korean Parliament. Quote, The American people welcome you as an equal partner in the great company of those who make up the free world. I say to you, you are not alone. You will never be alone so long as you continue to play worthily your part in the great design of human freedom. Unquote. The Koreans taken completely by surprise, wondered what he meant by those words. Less than one week later, when the North Koreans invaded South Korea, they found out. On the very next Sunday, while Bellis was still in Japan, the Korean War broke out with an attack on the South by the North Koreans. With someone of his stature, a senior partner of the largest law firm in New York City, Sullivan and Cromwell, and a man who had found a worldwide platform in the World Council of Churches, these had been most unusual statements on many counts. They were surpassed only by his prediction, unquote, of the outbreak of the Korean War at that time. As for his other statement about, quote, Christian gentlemen, unquote, few there who would have held the same opinion of President Rhee and Generalissimo Chang, particularly the latter. Indeed. And we should note that uh, John Foster Bellis uh, was a protagonist of the cartels, international monopolies, and it was the Korean War which uh, helped to ramp up both the German and Japanese economies, both things that were near and dear to John Foster Dulles. In the For the Record program uh, 1181, we took a look at John Foster Dulles and his espousing of cartels. In the book Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, written by Paul Manning and available for download for free on the SpitfireList.com website, we note the following. A substantial infusion of money into this new Federal Republic of Germany economy resulted from the Korean War in 1950. The U.S. was not geared to supplying all its needs for armies in Korea, so the Pentagon placed huge orders in West Germany and in Japan. From that point on, both nations winged into an era of booming good times. Again, I think that the true history of the Korean War has yet to uh, be given to us. As we've noted, uh, it's very interesting that that, that war helped to uh, 
uh, both for both Japan and Germany, and that was to the delight of the cartels and people like John Foster Dulles who supported them. Uh, another article we looked at in uh, the for, aforementioned for the record 1142, uh, the obituary Pak Sun South Korean general seen as hero or traitor, one of the first major, he was the first four-star general in the South Korean army, and building about him. In 1941, he joined the Army of Manchukuo, a puppet state that Imperial Japan had established in Manchuria, and served in a unit known for hunting down Korean guerrillas fighting for independence. Though Mr. Pike, P-A-I-K, said he had never engaged in battles with them. Uh, again, many of the combatants on the side of the U.S. and the U.N. Uh, actually had been people who fought for the Axis. So more about that in future programs because we are all out of time. This concludes for the record program number 1207, The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 14, being recorded on October 8th of 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.